all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 179 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the even-numbered Days of the Year episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out, in a nearly ironic twist, that 179, an odd number, of the 365 days of the year, another odd number, are even-numbered. So with that wonderfully ironic twist of even-numbered numbered days in the odd-numbered year being 179, I, of course, am Matt, back to the good form and the good voice. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Yes, it does sound like you beat that dreadful plant bukkake that you had all clogged in your throat. I did. I managed to take it all. Every last bit of the plant bukkake. <laughs> some will say, some would tip their hat to that. Like, good job. We salute <laughs> you. You you did a great job taking that plant bukkake like a man. That's right. For those about to cock, we salute you. Yes, coming from the mouth of a 4.0 GPA-er over here, oh, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, yes we, you are now speaking to a smart man. i I wouldn't know about that (laughs) one week ago he was not smart nay nobody would think of that of matt but now now that on paper or in digital form because i don't know if you received anything on paper that says congratulations you made a 4.0 now okay i I forget it's been a while since i've been in college when you get a 4.0 do you make like a specific list yeah, generally you make the dean's list for the semester. Because I didn't quite make the 4.0. I made the janitor's list. <laughs> you you made the uh, the Bush 43 specialist presidential list? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Jimmy Carter presidential list. Well, no, that's actually how he closes his speeches His like, when he does commencements and stuff. He says, you know, I'm, uh, to all of the, you know, magna cum laudes and summa cum laudes and, the, and, and uh, high achievers in the audience, you know, the world looks forward to what you are going to bring to it in the future. And to everyone else who just had a C average, remember that you too can be the president of the United States. Is it because he had a C average? <laughs> he had a C average from college. Like all through college. <laughs> yeah. Really? He had a 2.0. That was his. That was his GPA. Well, I'm happy to say I made more than a 2.0. So if I made the janitor's <laughs> list, <laughs> he made the caretaker list. There you go. So yes. Anyway, how you been, sir? Good, good. I put a, a futon together this past week. It didn't take me the whole week, but if I was doing it on my own, it very well could have taken me the whole week. Because have you ever put a futon together? There's a lot of parts and components and parts that need to slide in and move around and... Now, it sounds... That that sounds like sex. And I have had sex on a futon, but not (laughs) ever... Like, was it the futon up or was the futon down? Both, actually. Like, did it start up and then you... The first time the futon was up and then the next time the futon was laid flat like it was supposed to be. 
So did it make such a difference that you forever have that moment, or those moments, forever ingrained in your memory of the food composition? Honestly, I didn't think about it that way until until you put it that way just now, but I guess so. If I can remember... The two times I've had sex on a futon, and one was the way, yeah. So um, I guess it did make a difference. It was enough that I remembered one one time each way. Well, I guess that's a special thing about a futon is that it, it has the leg up over a waterbed or your standard standard bed because you can uh, place memories in whether or not if it was up or if it was laid down. And and even if it started up and then you were going so hard at it that it went down on its own. That would be pretty impressive, considering the way the futon writes itself so that you can lay it flat and turn it into a bed. Unless That's you put it together like me and and possibly did it all wrong. And you're sitting on the futon when it's up, you fart, and then it just falls back. Oh, wow. That's, I don't know. But you did mention waterbed. And I have definitely done it in a waterbed, too. And I will say that the waterbed has more cons than pros but the one big the the one uh major pro to the waterbed is that it truly does help with momentum because once you get the momentum rolling it will yes it's fun i recommend uh girl on top for it but yeah works very very well you can't really have drunk love making on a waterbed though because when they make you a little sickly it well, and that's the down. That's because imagine like the softest bed that conforms to you in every portion, no matter where your movement. And that's what a water bed does, right? It's supposed to be, you know, that really soft conforming thing that allows you to. And you can't move, so every time you're trying to move or roll over, it's just awkward, and your you know hands are going everywhere and not appropriately where it's fun for that specific moment. And yeah, it's and then. Uh, the worst experience, though, was <laughs> I had already, like, all of the coitus was over, right? So all the fun is over. I'm just passed out. And this dude had that I was with. Whoa, ho, hey, ha, what? Hang on. Hey, I'm, I'm you, getting there. Okay, he well, had I mean, the, don't be such a pause. He had immediately, well, hang on. Uh, the, okay, I guess let me back up here. And Me and a buddy of mine, we went to this party, okay? <laughs> and at this party, there is... Uh, there were many girls. I went ended up with one of the better-looking girls, and we are on her waterbed. He went after, I mean, just full-on beer goggles, right? And I did my best. I did my damn best. I was the good friend, and we had a code. We always had a code, and the code was, dude, come over here. I have someone you need to meet. We... We never needed to do that uh, under normal circumstances, right? So the code was always, dude, you have to come over here. I have someone that I have you to meet and or that you have to meet. And so he has just, I mean, he just beelined for the least attractive girl in the group. And so I tried to save him. I'm like, dude, come on. I, I, you know, I have someone you need to meet. No, man, it's great. I'm good. No, seriously, you really, really need to meet this person. And so he said no. And I tried one last time. He's like, dude, I got this. And I'm like, oh, I know you got this. That's the problem. And I let him go. So, I mean, you know, clearly the heart wants what the heart wants. So now fast forward to the 
the dude that I showed up to the party with here. Uh, and I'm already asleep. And then all of a sudden, he is pushing down on the nape of my neck between my shoulder blades to, you know, push to, to jostle me awake, except it's a waterbed. So I'm literally just flashing up and down into the, and I'm like, oh God, no, make it stop. Because, you know, there had been drinking or whatnot. And he didn't say anything. He just looked at me and held out the car keys. And I'm like, do, do we need to go? And he just nods his head yes. And I'm like, was it bad? And he's, he just nods his head yes. Says, do you want to talk about it? And he just shakes his head no. <laughs> and this is the night you so, met your wife, right? Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> that's right. And so uh, at any rate, yeah, so I ended up, we, 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 we jetted from the from the premises this is matt the 4.0 gpa history scholar here telling us about (laughs) the history of matt and sex in a waterbed and futons (laughs) apparently yes and 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 guys who broke the bro code (laughs) and paid for it so how was your cinco de mayo did you did you do anything fun and cinco de mayo hopefully nothing douchey i'm trying to think what because that Cinco de Mayo was the last night that I that I had finals. That was the last night of finals for last, and I know I came home. No, no, we did not do anything because the festivities uh, are, are one of our neighbors is her birthday is along with my sister actually so uh it, her birthday is the 5th of May and so she wanted to do her birthday party on Saturday and so everything got pushed to Saturday and we ended up partying it up on Saturday full force nice i discovered a delicious drink that will forever at least replace homemade margaritas and it is a paloma are you familiar with palomas uh no it's uh, tequila, preferably was a reposario or okay. whatever, the yellowy tequila, and you uh, you you know you put a little in the glass and then you you do a little bit of lime juice, but then you fill up as much as you'd like with soda, the Mexican soda, a grapefruit soda. Oh, okay, yeah. We, 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 I didn't know they called them Palomas. We just always did uh, squirt and tequila or fresca and tequila. And, and it's really, 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 really good with Don Julio. Hmm. Yeah. My boy Gonzo introduced me to that back in 2006. You, it sounds like you belong to a frat party. Like, <laughs> my boy Gonzo. <laughs> Talk about waterbeds and futons. You have, I mean, if one has, if, if is, one has stories this, about when that I should type have been stuff. going to college all those years ago, that's what I was doing. Yeah. So clearly, clearly, I probably should have been doing the college thing first, and and then we could be successful. Whoever together. says my boy Gonzo, unless you're in a douchey fraternity. Um. Well, apparently I do, because I'm not in a douchey fraternity, but I got my boy Gonzo. I don't know. 
I don't know how to. I don't know how that works, but yeah, I'm glad that that's cool though. I'm glad you know that now I have these wonderful stories. It's interesting though because, and this has nothing to do with anything. It's not even news <laughs> of the weird or anything like that. I, but I did literally just find out. Apparently, though, men who can tell a good story uh, are seen as more attractive and of higher status. It's a psychology article that I saw on Reddit from the science subreddit. What does the guy look like who wrote it? Uh, let's see here. I'm going to pull this up real quick. This is from digest.bps.org.uk. Is it Mole Man? Uh, I, no. He, here, let me show you. You tell me. He almost looks like kind of like a tele-evangelist or something. <laughs> like, you know, and I don't know if this is the dude who, from the art. Well, there you go. Okay, I just sent you. And the picture should be in the chat. Yeah, I mean, he does kind of look like the pastor of a non-denominational church. Yeah. You know, you know but, and I mean, this is research digest though. So for, for the British psych- psychological society. So I guess it's nice that I, I, I must be, uh, I must be somewhat cool enough. If I have learned to tell stories that involve the use of <laughs> the use of the words, my boy Gonzo. <laughs> Oh yeah, futon, cool. waterbed, and beer goggles. That's right. All right. Well, do you have anything else that you'd like to bring into this? Since we're like way over time already. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think I should dare to. To be honest, I think all you right. took the cake. I'll leave it all in your court. Outstanding. Well, anybody who's seen me knows I'll eat cake. Apparently. All right. So. We'll just move right into the mailbox. And, of course, you, as always, can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And first and foremost, let's see, we have one email and one Twitter follower. I'm going to get to the Twitter follower second because it turns out that Diana uh, was not aware. Our good friend Diana, who always is so kind and sends us email, uh, apparently did not realize that we record on Monday nights. And so she sent us an email on Tuesday last week. And now, uh, and she had tweeted out at us over the weekend. And uh, I, and in failing her twice, I didn't see any form or fashion of the tweet until tonight. So I made sure to hit her up on Twitter and let her know, hey, yes, we do record on Monday. Sorry. So here we are, Monday, May 9th. And I'm going to read her uh, email here. So this is what's up. It says, Uncanny Valley in the subject line. Hey guys, while listening to another review of The Jungle Book, the term Uncanny Valley was used to describe the reason Mowgli was not shown as CGI. Funny term, eh? It refers to the fact that people look creepy when CGI'd in a movie. Case in point, Tom Hanks in Polar Express very creepy i thought this answered the question of why did they why they did it that way feel better now matt cheers diana all right so thank you very much for sending that uh, our way as always diana and here's the thing it doesn't make me feel better because while i am very much aware of the uncanny valley thing uh, as a matter of fact it killed robert zemeckis's studio um, it, from mom, Mars Needs Moms because people were too freaked out by it and so they didn't go see the movie and it cost a lot of money and Robert Zemeckis actually lost this um, animation production studio that he had. It was actually, I thought it was uh, A Christmas Carol that did it. The Jim Carrey one was the last one he did. Nah, um, 
I'm pretty sure if you would like to look it up, please feel free. But I am pretty sure it was uh, Marzny's moms that killed it. But at any rate, um, so yes, and, and I have heard people say I've never actually seen Polar Express, but I have heard a lot of people say that Tom Hanks looks really weird in it. And yet I've also heard people who don't care. So I am totally aware of the CGI thing where the Uncanny Valley uh, really exists. But the thing is, is that you can avoid the Uncanny Valley. It's not like you have to make something so literally lifelike and realistic that it ends up coming into play as Uncanny Valley. Um, A subtle shift in the way that they did the animation for the rest of the animals would have solved that problem as well. But, um, so, so I guess, no, I'm, I'm still not, I still don't feel better in that regard to the jungle book, but thank you as always for sending us email and please don't stop. We love it. Um, moving on of course to the Twitter follower. Uh, and of course, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at, the SLS cast. And let's see here. We have um, Los Angeles Life is following us now. And at Badder Near Amanda, that's B A D E R N E I R Amanda. All one word, all lowercase letters. Um, I'm not sure what, who or what that is, but thanks for the follow. <laughs> And that's that. So no more there. And I think uh, we can definitely move on to the news, if you are ready for it, sir. Yes, I think we are ready. Here we go, folks. It's the news. So, first up from me, from TheGuardian.com, by way of Benjamin Lee, uh, Melissa McCarthy admits she found Ghostbusters trailer, quote, very confusing, end quote. Um, And, of course, this apparently, I've decided to just, you know, I'm like a dog with a chew toy here. I can't seem to let go of this Ghostbusters trailer thing. Um, So I apologize if I am doing this thing to death, but in the ever-continuing saga... The star of the, quote, most disliked, end quote, trailer in YouTube's history has said she raised concerns with the studio, but was ignored. Melissa McCarthy has responded to criticism of the Ghostbusters reboot, saying she finds the original trailer, quote, very confusing, end quote. The past week saw the trailer for the all-female take on the sci-fi comedy become the most disliked trailer on YouTube, with over 600,000 thumbs-down votes. McCarthy, who stars in the film alongside uh, Kristen Wiig, has now spoken about her concerns over the way the trailer presents the story. Quote, It's a reboot, not a remake. I know it's weird that they say 30 years ago, but in this movie, it's like the first one didn't happen. It's a great story, but it's told totally differently. It's four unlikely heroes. It's in New York City. Ghosts are taking over. It's that same classic story, but it's not 30 years later. It's not dependent on the first one, end quote. 
Uh, McCarthy also said that she raised the issue but was ignored. Quote, believe me, the question was asked. I think that it's very confusing. But then everyone said, we don't care what you think, end quote. Um, there's a little bit left to this article, but I am not going to read it. You can please feel free to check that out again, guardian.com, uh, by way of Benjamin Lee. What do you think, Tim? Um, as the uh, Coming from one of the stars of the movie who was there for the making and says she tried to raise some issues... Uh, can you see why she would say, yeah, I, I totally get why people are confu- at least confused by it, even if they don't like it? That's the least of my worries, you know, getting confused really? with, with with it being whether or not it's a sequel or prequel or or, what, or a remake or whatever. Because, I, I mean, the trailer is just so bad. It's just so bad. There's so many other things to to complain about. And... I hate complaining about it because I, I mean I haven't seen the movie. I, I mean most people haven't seen the movie, but it's just as how trailers. Has, has anybody seen? Them? <laughs> oh, some people have, I'm sure. Well, sure, I yeah. guess. Yeah, you know, studio execs and test audiences, yeah. I imagine, have probably seen the movie. But it, it's just uh, you know, as, as a trailer itself compared to how trailers should be made, it really does a bad job, or it actually, I should say, it does a good job at making people not very excited for it. So to me, that is what I think is the bigger issue that a lot of us take with it, not because of the confusion of whether or not it's a prequel or a remake or a sequel or not. Fair enough. All right, man. Well, what do you got for us? I'm going to start off with two pieces of interesting news. At least I think they're interesting. From io9.com, Wolverine 3 will be R-rated and star a, quote, bold different, in quote, Wolverine. This is written by James Whitbrook, and I apologize in advance. We already know that Wolverine 3 will be R-rated. But according to Simon Kinberg, who was speaking to Collider.com, this is what he had to say about Wolverine, the character. He says, quote, I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say. In fact, I will agree with you that Patrick Stewart was rumored to be a part of that film. It takes place in the future, and as you and others have reported, it is an R-rated movie. It's violent. It's kind of like a Western in its tone. It's just a very cool, different film. It's a very radical and bold, different Wolverine than you've ever seen in any of these movies. End all quotes there. So yes, that is Simon Kinberg, the producer, speaking with Collider. Matt, what do you think about that? Are you interested in seeing a bolder, newer, differenter Wolverine compared to what we've seen him in the past? Because I get, I mean, what I've heard is this is going to follow the lines of Old Man Logan, of the Old Man Logan storyline, where it's a little grittier and more violent than I guess what we are used to. Is this something you're okay with, or do you prefer the Wolverine that we've had or what we've been used to seeing before? No, actually, I think this will be a nice. I think it'll be a nice twist, especially if it causes Hugh Jackman. This, this is supposed to be the last time he's doing it, right? Yeah. Okay. So if this is the way to actually send him off, um, good storyline to choose from, and uh, and because of the way they can utilize the story to break away from everything else. Um, It'll be a it'll be a good change of pace 
and a way to say goodbye and close off Hugh Jackman and have an R-rated movie that makes sense. So I think it could work. There you go. And from therap.com, something that I find very interesting, the Beatles classic Hey Jude licensed a Chinese film for six figures. Yes, this is from the culture section of the rap written by Tim Kennelly, and it says this. This deal marks the first time that a Fab Four tune has been licensed in China. Nearly 50 years after their breakup, the Beatles are preparing to invade China. The group's 1968 hit, Hey Jude, has been licensed by publishing company Sony ATV for the Chinese film Yesterday Once More. Marking the first time that a Beatles song has been licensed to China, a spokesperson for the publisher told The Rap. The licensing fee for the song was in the hefty six-figure range. The film is described by Billboard, which first reported the news, as a coming-of-age offering. The movie's two leads will sing the tune in English. The Beatles' catalog hasn't often been licensed. One notable exception was when AMC series Mad Men licensed the group's 1966 song Tomorrow Never Knows for a 2012 episode, paying a reported $250,000 for the use. End all quotes there. I, I find this stuff very interesting because the Beatles, as well as like Led Zeppelin, you hardly hear either in any films. I mean, more recently I've been hearing Led Zeppelin tunes and trailers and whatnot, but I remember back when... Uh, how long has it been? 10, 12, 13 years since the School of Rock came out? Uh, has it been tw- 13 years? 10? I don't remember when it came out. It's been at least 10. It's been at least sure. 10. I think it came out in 2003, so just about 13 years, I guess. They uh, petitioned. They did. A, they sent a video to the Led Zeppelin's manager or Led, Zeppelin, uh, Led Zeppelin's publishing or licensing manager company or whatever with Jack Black and some extras pleading them for them to use the immigrant song for I think like 30 second portion of the beginning of a scene and eventually that won them over and they got to use the song I don't know how much they were able to uh, or I don't know how much it cost them but they did actually get the rights to the song So I think this stuff is very interesting, and I love it when musicians do this with their songs, because when they allow, or when they are picky and choosy with the content that they put out there, and what will represent their content, it makes it that much more special. And I think not only does it benefit the artist, but it definitely benefits the film that uses it. So what do you think about this stuff, Matt? Do you agree that, or do you think some artists, or artists in general, should do this, uh, take more precautions with their music and be more picky and choosy with who uses it? Or should they just let whoever use their music for whatever price? I think, well, I I basically, I think that you need to make whatever decision you're going to make and then stick with it. Because one of the big things is, you know, oh, we don't sell out, we don't sell out, we don't sell out. And then, of course, back in 2003, I think it was, was when... Uh, Led Zeppelin <laughs> sold out to fucking Cadillac. I mean, seriously? Okay. So people were really pissed off because all of a sudden now Led Zeppelin songs are on Cadillac, and then from there you may or may not have heard it more often. Um, so when it comes to stuff like this Beatles thing, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, sounds like cash grab. And uh, why not? They've They've influenced enough shit. So... 
Sounds like they have it. They have the right to do what they want. Cool. Well, let's see here. Next up from me, also from TheGuardian.com, this time by way of Ben Child. Universal facing $70 million loss on The Huntsman. Winter's War. Fairy tale prequel endures disappointing opening weekend and could mark a rare misstep for a studio that broke box office records. In 2015, The Huntsman Winter's War could lose Studio Universal as much as $70 million, that would be 48 million pounds, at the box office, according to Variety. The magazine predicts global takings of around $200 million for the fantasy prequel, which floundered uh, when, with, with just a $19.4 million debut, down from the initial projections of $20.1 million. Uh, with a high-profile cast led by Chris Hemsworth and featuring Charlize Theron, Emily Blunt, and Jessica Chastain, Cedric Nicholas Troyan's film was budgeted at $115 million in production costs alone. Um, yeah, I think... Uh, I mean, the critics basically gave it a 16% on Rotten Tomatoes. You can't make a shitty cash grab movie and then sit there and wonder why nobody's willing to go see it because it sucks i mean i guess they were they were legitimately surprised it says that 2012 snow white and the huntsman which took in 397 million dollars worldwide uh but this this new movie which is actually a prequel and a sequel because apparently the first part of it is a prequel but then after like 20 minutes it goes and switches to it like fast forwards. So the movie doesn't even have Kristen Stewart in it. Um, I, I don't quite understand what the deal is. I, it's just pretty evident that it's like, this was a cash grab. So of course it was going to fail because yeah, just because money. So I don't know, Tim, what do you think? Uh, just desserts here for universal or what? Yeah, I guess. I mean, if it's an obvious cash grab and they didn't create something unique and of interest, then they get what they deserve. Did you see the first one? No, I haven't seen either one. I actually had to do some additional digging to find out that the movie itself is a prequel and a sequel. So, uh, yeah. um, It just, I don't know. The first one didn't seem to didn't really seem to have any kind of impact apparently it did it made 397 million worldwide so i guess they thought it was enough to make a see but i don't remember it blowing up the world when it was in the theaters i don't remember hearing people talk about it i don't remember hearing you know any of that kind of stuff and so then when i saw that they were doing a sequel my first question was what the fuck are they doing that for and apparently that was a good question to yeah ask. it was definitely a movie that i think appealed to more women than it did guys and I think that also goes to prove the, the movie-going culture now compared to a few years back. All right, man. Well, what else you got for us? All right, from Deadline Hollywood, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman coming together quickly. Could this be the hottest title at Cannes? This is written by Anita Bush. Uh, not Anita Bush, Matthew, but Anita Bush. Exclusive to Deadline. A legendary wise guy reunion is in the offering, and it could become the hottest international sales title at Cannes if a deal makes it in time. Martin Scorsese's long gestating The Irishman, which may bring together 
Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci, among others, in one film is coming together very quickly and could be made available to international buyers if Paramount, which currently controls the project, finishes a deal to sell international rights off to Fabrica Destiny in time before the Cannes market kicks off May 11th. Fabrica is the production banner of deep-pocketed Mexican financier Gaston Pavlovich, who also financed Scorsese's passion project Silence, which is coming out later this year. Sources tell Deadline that Paramount is in final negotiations to sell the rights to Fabrica in a similar deal structure that was put into place for Silence. In that scenario, Fabrica sold the rights to AI Film, which then employed IM Global to handle international sales at Cannes. However, it's still very much up in the air as to who may be the international agent on The Irishman. But more importantly, Matt, another movie that brought Joe Pesci out of retirement. How about that? Irishman, directed by Martin Scorsese, and starring not only Joe Pesci, but Robert De Niro and... Al Pacino. So not only is it a Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci reunion, but it's also a Robert De Niro, Al Pacino reunion. Isn't that cool? I think it's cool. I would agree. I, I, I'm I, honestly though, I'm more excited about the Joe Pesci thing <laughs> than anything else, because I would love for Joe Pesci to truly retire on something badass like this. So yeah. Yeah, and apparently The Irishman is based on the Charles Brandt book, I Heard You Paint Houses, which is the deathbed story from mob hitman Frank the Irishman Shireen, or Sheeran, about the disappearance and death of Jimmy Hoffa. Steve Zalen adapted the book for the screen, so another crime movie, which would be great. Uh, and then jumping over to the rap, Radiohead is playing their new music video in 35mm theaters. That is right. This is written by Jeremy Fuster. And, and a lot of you out there are probably wondering, Radiohead, Tim, why are you guys talking about Radiohead? Well, it is because of the little tidbit about 35mm and theaters. So I thought, what the hell? And not only that, but Radiohead and director Paul Thomas Anderson have sent 35mm prints of their music video Daydreaming to select theaters as an opening feature. Radiohead's newest album, A Moon-Shaped Pool, is quickly proving to be the rock equivalent of Lemonade. Tom York's band has released two daring music videos in the run-up to this new release, Burn the Witch, a stop-motion remake of the classic horror film The Wicker Man, and Daydreaming, a live-action short by Inherent Vice director Paul Thomas Anderson. Much like Beyoncé's collaboration with short film directors, Radiohead's creations are being praised for treating music videos as a medium for bold cinematic expression. Now Anderson is taking his music video and sending it out as 35mm prints to repertory theaters that still have old-school projectors up and running. Radiohead fans in Los Angeles can catch the new music video on the big screen at one of the three classic movie theaters, The Egyptian in Hollywood, The Arrow in Santa Monica, or Quentin Tarantino's New Beverly Cinema. The video will be screened as an opening feature in much the same way that movie palaces used to screen cartoons and newsreels prior to a future presentation. If you're looking for a movie-going experience that gives you more than just the film you paid to see, this is the ticket for you. 
For those outside of Southern California, you can catch Daydreaming at the Metrograph in New York City, Chicago's Music Box Theater, or at Alamo Drafthouse Cinemas. And there you have it. You can also watch these two videos online via YouTube, I'm sure. Definitely not, Matt, on Radiohead's website. (laughs) That's the idea, for sure. Um, All right, well. I'm going to go ahead and uh, finish up my news here. I've got a pair of news stories. Uh, one from Deadline.com by way of also Anita Bush. So there, ha ha ha. Uh, Star Wars Han Solo film Alden Ehrenreich lands the lead in spinoff. Uh, it says here, we don't know if he'll shoot first, but he has the job. Alden Ehrenreich. Aaron Reich will play Han Solo in Disney's standalone Star Wars movie, confirming what Deadline reported exclusively three weeks ago. Sources say the Hail Caesar star is negotiating to seal the deal. Uh, let's see here. And I don't know. I personally, I just think this is an absolutely terrible, uh, terrible idea. There is um, uh, a full article here as well, and also it, conclu- it includes the article from back on the 13th of April that they were relating to, uh, that I had read there just a moment ago. And if you would like to read the full article, please feel free. I think this is just a terrible idea. Alden uh, Ehrenreich does not look anything like Harrison Ford, and uh, I... I I think this is just an absolutely terrible idea for a movie all the way around. Why would you do something that so iconic where the dude is still alive? I don't care if his character's dead, but he is still alive. Harrison Ford's still around. And it just, yeah, everybody knows what he looks like. Everybody knows how he acts. Everybody knows what he's doing, and you're trying to just do a younger version. No, it just doesn't. Oh, bad idea. Bad, 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 bad idea. (sighs) And then also from EmpireOnline.com by way of James White, Oscar Isaac confirmed for political thriller A Foreigner. Yes. Uh, Let's see here. Basically, the the guy who played Poe Dameron, right? That's, That's who Oscar Isaac is. He's going to be starring in a film called A Foreigner, and it's going to be directed by Alfonso Gomez Rejon, who was the director of Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which we reviewed a month or so back on the show. And this is what it's about. I think this is a really fascinating, it is a true story about a Guatemalan man who, knowing that he might be killed, had set up a way to distribute videos of his killers so as to take down the corruption that had seen people similarly slaughtered before him. Yes, it's a true story. Uh, it's adapted by Argo's Chris Terrio from David Grand's New Yorker article, A Murder Foretold. Um, that's the bulk of the article. It's a very short article, but if you would like to read the whole thing for yourself, please go to Empire Online and check that article out. Tim, any comments, questions, concerns about either the Han Solo casting or the Oscar Isaac casting there. Well, the new Oscar Isaac movie sounds really cool. I think it's a really neat idea, especially since it's a true story. That's kind of mind-boggling, or mind-blowing, I should say. And casting the guy as Han Solo, I, I mean, I don't know what to say other than that he does share the same forehead. I saw a picture, and the foreheads were nearly identical. 
So maybe that's what they're going for. <laughs> I guess. Maybe the forehead's the hard part. Jawline is different. Nose is different. Eye color is completely different. Um, so, yeah. I don't know. Anyways. All right. Well, the uh, did you have anything else for the news, sir? Actually, yes. I do want to do this one last piece of news from the Telegraph. And this is, this is I mean, I'm interested in your take on this, Matt. Because this does involve two of cinema's most regarded actor and actresses. Via the telegraph.co.uk, Emma Thompson attacks young actors who can't act and only get cast due to social media following. This is written by Telegraph reporters. I'm just going to read selective paragraphs here. Actress Emma Thompson has said she thinks the trend of movie studios hiring young stars because of their social media following is a disaster. She was speaking after greeting the Prince of Wales at a royal reception for British Academy Award winners. The event, hosted by Prince Charles and the Duchess of Cornwall at St. James Palace, saw Thompson sing, quote, It's you, you look gorgeous, end quote. Thompson joined a host of British acting royalty, including Dame Maggie Smith, Dame Judi Dench, Colin Firth, Jeremy Irons, Sir Michael Caine, and playwright and author Ronald Harwood. She said that one of the things that really worries her about social media is, quote, we're casting actors who have big followings so the studios can use their followings to sell their movie, end quote. She added, quote, the actors are becoming attached in the sort of business way to their social media profiles, and I think that's a disaster, end quote. The 57-year-old actress has picked up two Oscars, a Best Actress going for Howard's End and Best Adapted Screenplay for Sense and Sensibility. Meanwhile, Dame Judy Dench expressed concern about the lack of funds available to train young actors. She said, quote, I think it's worrying that training is so expensive. I must have. I, I don't know how many letters a week from young actors wanting to get to drama school and not having the money to get them through, end quote. Let me skip down. Ah, here we go. Sir Michael Caine also raised concerns about the generation of young actors coming through the ranks. He said, quote, these days they just... Say, I'm going to be an actor because I want to be rich and famous. And then they do a little part on television and everyone knows who they are. They can't really act. I know I wasn't going to be rich. I knew I wasn't going to be famous. I knew I wasn't going to be a movie star. I just wanted to be a good actor. That's all. End quote. Sir Michael is one of just two actors, the other being Jack Nicholson, to have been nominated for an Oscar in every decade from the 1960s to the 2000s. End all quotes there. Uh, Matt, what do you think about that? Do you think they raise a valid point? I, you know, I sure do. I think that's one of the reasons why we have all these, like, Selena Gomez star, you know, Justin Bieber's. Then again, I know Justin Bieber isn't really an actor, more so a... um, you know, a singer, but even, you can even look at, like, the Seth Rogans and the James Francos, to where back in the day, you know, when Seth Rogan first started, you know, it wasn't social media that got him going, he became popular because of the movies that he 
uh, originally created or helped create like 40-year-old version or was memorable for creating, I should say. But then over time, he's had a number of hits and a number of misses, but he still has social media, for example, and people backing him on social media. And I know I'm, I'm kind of picking on Seth Rogen here, and, and this really, I don't think he necessarily falls in this kind of category or falls into this topic. But you might get my drift in a way here regarding all these other actors. Uh, do you agree? Do you disagree? What do you think? I, I think in terms of getting butts in seats and in terms of getting the biggest bang for their buck because the sheeple are paying attention, then you go with what works, and that's you cast people in certain movie roles or with certain things because you know that they have enough of a social media, a reliable social media presence that they will be able to put the target audience in the seats. Um, I think it's, uh, I, I think it's equivalent to a short sale though, because you are not building up the roster of viable talent for the future who's actually going to make the big hits or become serious actors or really win the awards that are going to be taken seriously and carry the the industry forward as a whole. So I understand why they do it. And I also think that it's somewhat frustrating for people like Emma Thompson and Michael Caine. But you also have to remember, these are people who are in their 60s and 70s. And the world's not about them anymore. Even though they still have things to offer, um, it's just not what a lot of people want to take. So Facebook and MySpace, social media in general, has been around for... I mean, in full force, a little over 10 years now. And do you feel there's been a significant change in how we view media or how a mass decides on what type of content they want to watch at a movie theater? To a certain degree, yes. But not to the extent that it's going to actually be able to stem the tide of people not wanting to see movies anymore or at least not experience them the way that the current mode exists, which is force people to go to a local megaplex and spend $25 for a ticket and some popcorn. Um, And that's on the cheap side nowadays. Uh, And listen to a whole bunch of people whine and make noise and whatever else. Um but it does tend to keep certain metrics in check by, oh, look at all this attention we're getting. And, oh, look at all these kids who now want to go see the movies. And, oh, look at, you know. But, again, these are not the people who are going to keep it keep the industry afloat. It's a stopgap. And, like I said, it's a short sale. So There you have it. And, again, that, uh, that article was from Telegraph dot co dot uk or dot co dot uk emma thompson attacks young actors who can't act and only get cast due to social media following so if you're interested do check out the rest of that article right on right on okay well that concludes the news and we will now move to was it worthy he is the star of the highest rated series in television history 
the winner of four 1987 People's Choice Awards, including favorite all-time male entertainer. The best-selling comedian of all time on records. You don't mean... Yes. He's got America in the palm of his hand. All right. And now you've got him on video cassette. But I have nothing to wear. Your average tale of your not-so-average super spy. Kill him! Adventure so cool. You can taste it. America's living room legend, Bill Cosby. How'd you get on this tape? In Leonard Part 6, on video cassette, only from RCA Columbia Pictures Home Video. So what else is new? Episode 1 of the comic movie hit of the season, Bill Cosby is picked. We need you, Leonard. To save the world. But I have nothing to wear. Armed only with a combat pusher, under our missiles and a very fast ostrich. Will he save the day? Find out for yourself. See the world's favorite funny man, Bill Cosby. All right. In Leonard Part 6, an adventure in comedy rated PG. Leonard Part 6 starts Friday at select theaters. So, this week's uh, installment of Was It Worthy, we're, like I said, we're doing the opposite here. So this time, we're going to look at the Golden Razzies, which is, or the or Razzies, or the Golden Raspberry Awards. Uh, and this is, of course, the industry leader in When You Suck, this is the award you're nominated for. Um, uh, in 1987, the movie of the year, basically, Worst Picture, from Columbia, from Columbia Pictures, the producer, Bill Cosby, officially awarded this, was Leonard Part 6. Now, basically, this was, a, 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 I don't want to say a vanity project or a passion project, but definitely something that Bill Cosby had come up with a concept for and worked with the screenwriter to come up with and actually create a, a screenplay. Um that I think was something that probably had a lot of legs in the idea stage. Like, oh my God, let's make this movie. It sounds like it'd be amazing, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And be just kind of really ridiculous and stuff like that. But instead, what we have is the most ridiculous and stupidest plot ever seen. I mean, and this is coming from a guy that truly enjoys Hudson Hawk. So... Take it from me when I say this movie, Leonard Part 6, is the stupidest plot you can possibly think of. Where we have a <laughs> we have a bad guy who trains animals <laughs> to kill certain people. And not only just any bad guy, <laughs> she's a vegetarian. True, true. And so Bill Cosby is a retired CIA agent who has to come uh, back from retirement in order to save the world with the magic meat. <laughs> God. Uh, and if you've ever seen the gif of Bill Cosby waggling a hot dog, it's from this movie. Um, and even and even Tim discovered this wonderful little gif. He got to put it up on Facebook the other day. Um, and so this movie was nominated and subsequently won for Worst Picture of 1987. It was up against other amazing hits such as, such as Ishtar, 
Jaws, The Revenge, Tough Guys Don't Dance, and Who's That Girl? Now, Who's That Girl is the Madonna vehicle that was... I. It, it was... Um, when they were trying to market her to be like... Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, she, yeah, she's like like Prince. She was supposed to be like the female Prince, right? Not only was she this rocker girl and everything, but she had just come off of a pretty decent role from Desperately Seeking Susan, and uh, and so they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, she's the it girl now, right? We're gonna put her in TV and movies and video and all that kind of stuff. And so this was supposed to be her big vehicle. Now, in defense of that, I actually went and saw Who's That Girl in the theater, okay, and. It's a pretty bad movie. It it really is a pretty kind of a stinker of a movie. It doesn't come close to Leonard Part 6. It is technically a bad movie, and it's... But, I mean, there are things that you can at least say, oh, well, I mean, they tried to make a movie here. It's just some kind of shoddy characters and some stereotypes and definitely some 80s things that haven't aged well or what have you. So there's, I mean, the things you could at least say they tried. There are definitely some redeemable qualities, like the guy who's in it. I think the guy was pretty good as as the straight guy of the couple. The one that has to follow uh, around. Yes, Griffin yeah. Dunn. Yeah, there yes, you go. Griffin Dunn. I thought he was good. He was funny. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and I mean, this is, of course, he was also uh, real big from American Werewolf in London, which is kind of, you know, he was pretty good in that as well um then we have tough guys don't dance um now this one came pretty close i don't know um uh, this was actually the only one on the list that i had never seen before and so watching this one was like really <laughs> it's a tough one to watch but it's definitely worth watching i think i di- well okay i disagree i i don't think it was the worst movie i think quite frankly um, it ties for second place with Jaws: The Revenge because <laughs> Leonard parts and that Leonard part six still were, uh, still 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 terrible, uh, so terrible. Tough guys don't dance is just, um, I I think the thing is with with Tough Guys Don't Dance, which is a movie about a guy who has blacked out and come to, and there's like a head in his trunk with marijuana. He's a pothead and he's a swinger and. There's a girl who's died, and now he's trying to figure out who did it. And even he himself might have done it. Um, I think that... Uh, what, what's his name? Leonard? No, it wasn't Leonard. What's the guy who wrote the damn... The... Uh, Norman Mailer. Yeah. Who also directed it. Um, I, I really think this was just kind of like... Look how intelligent I am. And look how amazing I am. And you know what? This was not the piece for him to do that with. Well, he also wrote the book. I know he wrote the book. but uh, And he wrote the screenplay. But then they had to come back and fix the screenplay. And then he comes in and directs the movie. And he just... I, I, think, I think he should have just let somebody else do the screenplay entirely and let somebody else direct it. Had those two things occurred, I think the movie would have been better. Yeah, I think even Robert Town came in. The guy who wrote... <laughs> Chinatown, the Academy Award winning or an Academy Award winning uh, uh, screenwriter came in to fix it and he even couldn't fix it. And he he's he's uh, labeled as writing one of the best screenplays of all time, which is kind of crazy. So and agreed. I mean, I just yeah, it's it it, totally agree. I, I think that it should have been handled by 
someone else, and then I think the movie might have had a chance. I don't know. All right, so then we've got Jaws the Revenge, where literally Jaws is out to get Roy Scheider's family uh, <laughs> and travels to the Bahamas to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, forms a, the shark forms a psychic link with his wife, and Michael Caine plays an amazing uh, <laughs> pilot and everything. Um, look, this movie, th- this is it's a bad movie. It's really bad. It also completely ignores Jaws 3D, which was just another complete disaster. Um, the, the yeah. That movie is a complete mess all over the place. Uh, Michael Caine uh, is reportedly on the record as saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, I have not seen the movie, and by all accounts, it's terrible. I have, however, seen the house I built with the money I got from the movie, and it's fantastic. (laughs) So that ought to sum up Jaws the Revenge for you there. And then the other nominee was Ishtar, which is... um, a, another another Columbia Pictures film, and uh, Warren Beatty produced it. Um, this is about two singer-songwriters, played by Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, who, because they have no absolutely no prospects, take a gig in a war-torn country in the Middle East and inadvertently get set up in a situation of... Uh, being played by both sides in the war in the middle in this big conflict in the middle east and everything uh and the thing was is like this movie it's not really that it's a bad movie exactly like it's just that you have really good actors with terrible everything else um terrible supporting cast uh, clearly too much of a production budget with no real idea, with no, with no real goal in sight. Um, an interesting idea, but no script to really flesh it out. There was tons of production issues, tons of delays, tons of reshoots and stuff like that. Um, the movie actually changed hands at one point to get a new studio so that, that it could actually come out. Um... And the movie was really just destined to fail. It's not that it's the worst movie ever. I think it's just because of the caliber of the names and the ideas that were behind it. People were just expecting so much more. So is it the worst movie ever in this? You know, did it even deserve to be on this list? Eh, I don't know. I think people were just pretty butthurt that year. But that still leaves us with Leonard Part 6. And by God, long and the short of it is... Leonard Part 6 absolutely deserves, it is completely worthy of worst picture, according to the Golden Raspberry Awards um, from 1987. So, I don't know. Agree? Disagree, Tim? I agree, for sure. I mean, the problem with Tough Guys Don't Dance is that Norman Mailer, you know, the poet, the playwright, the author, man, his filmmaking and his writing comes off as too pretentious and and really prickish and dickish, as if we are actually supposed to care about these fucking people. I mean, these are some of the worst people that we're trying to that that they that they want us to develop some kind of bond with. But how can you when you have horrible lines, Matt, like the one I sent you via text message, 
a few nights ago, if you recall that one. <laughs> uh, oh, hang on, hang on. I, of course, I always keep everything you send me just in the event of text, you know, texts by Tim. Let's see here. Ah, yes. But you have to do it in her voice. You have to do it in her in her in her country voice. <laughs> My pussy hair was bright gold in high school until I went out and scorched it with the football team. <laughs> So there's beautiful lines like that said by Tim, who is played by Ryan O'Neill, and these two hickish people. One of them is one dude, and the other one is that woman who says that. And poor poor Isabella Rosalini, an excellent, prestigious Italian actress, who is the only one that gives a decent performance in this film, looks like she is so confused as to why she took on that particular role. So that's the problem with Tough Guys Don't Dance. It's very, very pretentious when the writing is horrible and the dialogue is horrible. Like what Matt said with Jaws the Revenge, from beginning to end, the movie is laughable. That's how bad it is. It is what I, I hope, I hope either Mystery Science Theater 3000, I mean, because they're bringing that back, or even Rift Tracks does something on this movie because you can rip this movie 100%. Because the only person that looks like they're having a bitchin' time is Michael Caine. And again, like what Matt said, it is obvious that he is doing it to buy a house with the money he is receiving for that role. <laughs> and then Ishtar, a movie that I actually kind of like... Because Paul Williams, who I think is one of the the best songwriters from the 70s and 80s, did the music for it. And he actually got hired to write bad songs. Not just the little snippets that you hear them singing throughout uh, throughout the movie. But he wrote full songs that both Dustin Hoffman and Warren Betty learned. And they would perform them. And of course, the songs would get cut down in all these little montages. That's kind of also where the production budget, or gives you an idea how the budget kind of inflated, was because, you know, so much money went to Paul Williams and for the actors to learn the songs and all that stuff. But also another issue with Ishtar is that both Dustin Hoffman and Warren Betty were uh, were cast against type. The whole idea of Ishtar was that it was supposed to be like a Road 2 movie. You know, like Road to Morocco, Road to Bali, those old... The movies from the 40s and 50s with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. However, usually what would happen is that Warren Betty would have been cast as the Bing Crosby type, and then uh, and then Dustin Hoffman would have been cast as Bob Hope. But instead, they were cast against type, and the roles were reversed. So you had Dustin Hoffman, who played the role okay and fine, but then Warren Betty, who had, I guess he was a Texas boy, who kind of had an accent sometimes, who kind of came across more as awkward than as the goofy, as as the goofy guy, you know, the, the inexperienced goofy guy as the Bob Hope character. So to me, that was a big problem with the movie. And on top of that, Elaine May, the director, she got screwed over by Columbia. I mean, they're the ones who basically told the press that the movie was going to suck. And so going in, the press was already planning on hounding and dogging the movie. So unfortunately, I think Ishtar, you know, got the wrong end of the stick. I mean, it's still a not a great movie. It's an all right movie, but it's I don't think it really belongs on this list. But Leonard Part Six, yes, the creme de la creme of shitty movies. It's got to be 
top five, top maybe even top three. I don't know. I think just recently, I, I don't know if it was AFI or or one of those you know uh, organizations that do the best of or worst of lists, but apparently Leonard Part Six, I believe it was voted the uh, number one or top three worst movie of the past couple decades or the past few decades or something like that so that's got to say something from beginning to end leonard part six is awful everything from the music being by elmer bernstein who did the magnificent seven score i mean you know ostrich writing Cosby doing ballet dancing when he is obviously not the one doing the ballet dancing. It's just, God, oh man, from beginning to end, it is awful. To- definitely worse than Jaws The Revenge. I mean, I think it is definitely more sad than anything, or or definitely more sad to watch than Jaws The Revenge for sure. So do I think that Leonard Part Six deserved to be the worst of the worst of 1987? You bet your ass. In fact, I think it deserved to win. I think it deserved to sweep all categories, to be honest. I'm kind of surprised it didn't. You know, you have to spread the shame around, I guess, is the idea. Uh, So anyways, if you're feeling froggy, go check out Leonard Part 6 and tell us if you think it's the worst movie that came out that year or maybe one of the worst movies ever. Uh, And for next week, our bonus segment is going to be a three squared and we're going to have some fun with it this this next week. We're going to be doing our favorite 80s movie theater trailers. Now, I'm specifying movie theater because Tim brought up a good point when we were talking about this in the pre-show. The VHS trailers were something to behold. And so I want to hold back and have that as its own category someday uh, if we ever want to touch on this again. So our we're going to do our picks for our favorite 80s movie, tra- movie theater trailers for 3 Squared next week. And without further ado, I think it's time for the movies, is it not, sir? Movie it on. All right, folks, here we go. It's... The Movies! And this week's movies are... Captain America, Civil War, The Family Fang, and Remember. So, uh... Where do you want to start there, Tim? How about The Family Fang? The Family Fang. All right. This here is a 2015 American comedy drama film. It's actually directed by Jason Bateman, uh, written by David Lindsay Abair, and is based on the 2011 novel of the same name by Kevin Wilson. Film stars Jason uh, Bateman, Nicole Kidman, Christopher Walken, and Mary Plunkett also has roles uh filled by jason butler harner and katherine hahn um what we have here are two siblings who uh baxter and annie who are again played by nicole kidman and jason bateman (coughs) they have uh returned home uh, to base well i guess returned home is kind of a bit much they have been they were raised in a very uh public art kind of a family 
And every kind of crazy installation that they ever did, this, these parents, they would include their kids in and then make, make it into some kind of art display uh, or performance art or what have you. And so naturally being raised like this, you create, uh, you have eccentric parents and you have um, kids who are definitely out there, but also shockingly well-adjusted considering some of the things that they went through. Uh, Their parents appear to have disappeared under very heinous circumstances. And so the kids decide, well, I guess... Do we find out if this is art or the real thing? And in the process, of course, they discover themselves and everything about life and family and what makes it great, blah, 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 blah. Um, all right, so this is an interesting movie. I, I, I think that the novel is probably really, really good. Um, but I think that the story, while it has an, a very interesting premise and really good actors and actresses to play the family, I just, I just wasn't buying it. I mean, it felt like an, a performance art version of the Royal Tenenbaums. And quite frankly, I thought the Royal Tenenbaums was better. Uh, Jason Bateman, as a director, I think he did the best he could in terms of getting the right characterizations out. The problem wasn't the acting, and the problem wasn't the directing, I don't think. I think the problem was the source material from the screenplay. Cinematography is okay, nothing special, nothing bad. Um, but I'm just, I just did not buy the story. Um, it seemed like the whole time they were just trying too hard. And it's almost as if you get someone, when when you see Christopher Walken anymore, you see him as some kind of caricature of what he used to be as an actor. And it, it just, the whole thing was hard for me to take seriously. And And I just, it just, it comes down to the story and the execution of it. Not, um, I, I think it again probably would work really well, probably did work really well as a novel, and just not, just not on film. Um, so I give this one 2.25. I can't fully say I just completely didn't enjoy it because there are certainly good things about it, but I, I'm, I wouldn't watch it again if I didn't have to. So 2.25. What do you got, Tim? You know, I think this is actually a film that I would like to revisit sometime in the future. I really like what Jason Bateman uh, did with this movie. He made something that felt more like something that on the surface it really is not. And what I mean by that are all the elements and techniques that he used while making this film, while shooting this film, and while putting this film together in the editing room. There are elements of a good mystery and a very layered character study. And all at the same time, it kind of has that light feeling to it, and, it and, and like the heaviness and the drama never really bogs the movie down. Because you are dealing with layered and very troubled characters here. 
But at the same time, you know that I personally don't think this is actually based on real people. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think anybody can fully relate to these people in this particular way. But in doing so, it gives you an idea of how one would feel if they were put in this particular situation, if they had to deal with a family like this. And I really liked it. It was a good balance of both comedy and drama due to the type of elements that the movie did use. The movie didn't need to be completely laugh-out-loud funny. I mean, I got chuckles. I got... I mean, there were some really good lines. But more than anything, I just had a smile on my face. And the movie's not really... I mean, it's kind of is a mystery. Um, because something happens in it where they're trying to figure or trying to f- uh, to find something or someone, trying to figure something out. And it's a good portion of the film. And they do a good job at trying... T- in getting you, the audience, involved into figuring and finding that information out and you're invested in it and and it's and it's surprising because you're not really expecting that feeling and that element and i think a lot of that is to be uh is attested to the layered characters especially from nicole kidman the movie also makes great use of flashbacks they happen with i think the utmost professional and well executed uh, fluidity it's difficult to do that in the flashbacks that they show either set up a not I don't want to say they necessarily set up a scene but usually the next scene or the previous scene reverts or talks about something that happens within or or references something in that flashback normally when you approach a film in the editing room like that it could become very clunky and it can weigh down the story but I welcome the flashbacks with open arms. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It added stuff to the characters, especially the mother and the father. It made me care for them a little bit more, even though they are not really the greatest people in my book. Uh, So I give this one 4.25 out of 5. I thoroughly enjoy it and definitely recommend it for you guys to check out. Alright, sir. Where do you want to go from here? How about Remember. Remember. All right, 2015 Canadian German drama thriller film uh, directed by Adam Egoyen and written by Benjamin August. It stars Christopher Plummer, Bruno Ganz, uh, and Martin Landau. Um, and it stars a couple of guys in a New York nursing home. They're um, uh, people who basically very very old guys who have befriended one another they have um a connection because one survived uh from auschwitz and the other uh is kind of a dementia person um and so max who is the auschwitz concentration camp survivor sends his dementia patient buddy Zev, played by Christopher Plummer, on a mission. He's like, hey, you know, I happen to know for a fact that one of the guys who was responsible for so many of the deaths in Auschwitz got away and changed his name. He lives in, he's in the area here. I've got three of them. You should go and kill him. Zev agrees, and this is kind of the story of how it 
of how Zev goes down. Um, here's the problem for me with this movie is basically it is um, elderly Auschwitz version of Memento. And if you've seen that movie, then you can very, very quickly see where this movie is going and how it's going to play out and how it's going to end. And it completely killed it for me because I could see everything coming a mile away. Um, I think that the, but don't get me wrong. The performances are good. Um, I think the writing is decent. And despite the fact that it's a twist on something that's already been done better, in my opinion, by Christopher Nolan, um, it, that's not to say that this movie is just terrible. I think people who have, who are not familiar with Memento and I think people who are definitely of the age group who would recognize, Ooh, Christopher Plummer, Ooh, Martin Landau, right. Um, are definitely going to be mesmerized by this thriller, but not me. And I think, and I don't think it's fair that I should have to qualify this by saying you have to have missed out on some of the coolest movies ever, or by you have to completely ignore the work of one of the, you know, of, of a really visionary director of our time, just so that you can excuse yourself to watch this movie and not have the, and not ha- and not know how it's going to play out. Um, so for me, I give this one 2.5 out of 5, mainly because it was ridiculously predictable. Um, but the performances are very, very, very good. What do you got there, Tim? This is one of those very interesting movies. To me, it's kind of like a David Cronenberg movie in, in the way that there are excellent elements to the film, but then there are very not-so-excellent moments and aspects. I didn't really find the movie predictable as much as I thought it was way too heavy-handed and a little bit of a cop-out there at the end, only because they really didn't have anything for you to grasp on. I mean, if that makes any sense, like the materials weren't there for you to draw your own conclusion. At least I thought, again, I could have missed something And Matt, please tell me if I missed something or not, but I didn't catch anything that to me at least would have led me on to believe that what, you know, what happens at the very end. Um, well, I mean, okay. The, there are definitely enough clues there, and I think the absence of one of the primary characters at the beginning, um, I guess the absence of Martin Landau's character um, is what really speaks volumes, as it were. I, I, I'm trying not... And, and then, of course, you have the way in which Zev starts carrying everything out, and it just... It was just too easy of a setup, and where and what you're having an issue with is like, oh, it just kind of feels like they had to drop it on. That's what they were building to the whole time, and it's not that they didn't have anything left. That's what they were trying to do. And again, for me, that was very predictable. But for you, um, well, I guess I was expecting something else. And I mean, what I was expecting was. A very sad and depressing drama. And that is kind of what you get, definitely, if you if you read into story thematic elements, you know, too much and take everything with 
a grain of salt and look at things at a surface level. The idea of the ending is is pretty damn depressing. But to me, I, I you know, I, I really liked the idea. I really liked the story up until the ending. The idea of Christopher Plummer playing a Holocaust victim, a Holocaust survivor suffering through dementia, and he has to carry out this last thing that he promised to himself and a fellow Holocaust survivor. You know, he must kill that Nazi who destroyed both of their families. I think that is a brilliant story, and especially uh, one to come out now because most Holocaust, I mean, all Holocaust survivors are in their 80s and 90s very relevant uh, uh, piece. However, the premise is being played out, that is being played out, does seem far-fetched. And far-fetched in the way, especially the execution of the mission that Zev Christopher Plummer's character goes on. I mean, he, he has dementia, and he's able to walk out of his door and leave... There are no nurses at the nurse's counter, and they're able to hatch this plan without anybody knowing. Walter Matthau's character is able to stay up with his breathing machine at whatever hour of the night without being monitored or anything like that, just to be by the phone in case he gets a call from Zev with an update, or if Zev forgets something and he has to fill him in on whatever information. That's the type of stuff that bothered me a little bit and what I felt to be far-fetched. I thought the main performances, especially Christopher Plummer, were absolutely excellent. Main performers, as in Christopher Plummer, I thought Walter Matthau was very good. Um, Damn it, I forget his name. The uncle, the cop uncle from Breaking Bad, who he has, I think, a really well-done scene uh, with him. I kick, I shoot myself in the foot for forgetting his name, but I thought he did really well, and they have an excellent scene. I think the other older characters, I should say, that Christopher Plummer, Zeth, uh, Zev, talks with, has conversations with, do excellent jobs, but they're the smaller characters, the family members, the little kids, that to me are either overacting, underacting, they have no acting experience, they just felt out of place, and on a completely different level compared to Christopher Plummer or any of the other fine actors and actresses. And to me, I think that was just a director's fault, not not necessarily the actor's fault. Like I mentioned before, the ending of the film is just very heavy-handed. And maybe, I mean, not just the ending. I mean, there are definitely plenty of heavy-handed moments peppered throughout the film. But when it comes down to it, the movie, I think, is good. And I think the casual moviegoer who is interested in movies like this, revenge thrillers, uh, you know, uh, a geriatric dementia-fueled revenge thrillers, you know, you, you, I think you'll enjoy this movie, especially if you are a Christopher Plummer fan. I personally think, I, I mean, I don't know if he is eligible to be nominated for an Academy Award or a Golden Globe. I think the movie came out last December something, so he might have missed the boat. I don't know. But his performance is definitely awards worthy in my book. So I think you should definitely check it out. As to what I rate it... I liked it. I will give it th- I will give it 3.5 out of 5 and that I think that goes to show you how good their performances are by Plummer and all of his fellow older thespians. 
Alright, well then that leaves us with Captain America Civil War! Uh, let's see here. 2016 American superhero film. Alright, you guys, come on. This is where Captain America and Iron Man fight because Iron Man thinks that the Avengers need oversight and uh, Captain America thinks that the Avengers need to remain free to operate not necessarily unilaterally but to be able to utilize their conscience the right way and not be under the thumb of other countries who will only want them to be used as they see fit. All right. This is a really hard one for me because I was very, very excited with this storyline. I was really hoping to see something dynamic happen in terms of not just the storytelling, but the outcome of the conflict. And in terms of really fleshing out the characters of Cap and Iron Man... I think this movie did an amazing job. I think that you finally and truly got to see just exactly what it was. It's not that they didn't respect one another. It's that they both tripped over themselves so much in establishing themselves as the way they saw how not just they should be and the world should be, but the team should be, that they couldn't ever really get to appreciate each other, let alone like one another. And it's... and. Um, a really good element to that is when Iron Man is when Stark is talking with, uh, Rogers and he brings the pens that FDR used to sign this treaty or whatever that ultimately created Captain America. And Cap's just about to do it. And then he finds out what Stark has done to scarlet witch and that's it right um it's those kinds of moments that are peppered throughout that really give you a true heart and soul to these characters that i think has been sorely lacking in all of the avengers movies despite the things that i liked about the other avengers movies i really thought this did a great job and i thought that there was a real good conflict uh when it comes to people like scarlett johansson's character of black widow where you can see how there are people on the fence and you can see how there are people who are just on one side or just on the other and how they respect one another but they just can't see a way to agree on things as they go um and so Letting that go against the backdrop of someone who is able to play both sides against each other, which is what we have in our evil, you know, mastermind, um, definitely allowed, I thought, the plot to kind of play out in an organic way. Where I, and so, but where, and, and that's where everything, all the good stops for me. For everything else about the movie was really kind of shoddy. And the reason why is because everything else comes to the clashes that they have. And because these clashes are so epic, I'm using air quotes, which of course you can see, right? Yay, audio podcast. Um, They require special effects. And the special effects in this movie, I don't understand how you can spend $250 million on a movie and the special effects look this bad. They're just bad. I mean, they're 
what makes what made Iron Man work was the fact that you're inside of a suit, so all of your close-ups can simply have that nice reflection of the uh, heads-up display and everything, and you can really see a character selling things with just his face. And that's fine. I mean, you know, you, you need some CGI for that or whatever. Great, whatever. The thing is, is that now they're trying to do that with people who don't have suits that work that way. So, like, when they're doing close-ups of Falcon, for example, you can tell... It's just him hanging there in front of a green screen that they made look like the sky. Uh, you can see where they've actually taken the time to do real aerial shots on location, but then just superimpose all the other crap in CGI because they didn't want to put a real helicopter out there or something. All of these things, it's just so completely obvious that it's fake, that you are left sitting there going... Dear God, please at least let the dialogue during these scenes where it's necessary be something worthwhile. And when you have the big epic matchup at the airport, you get little snippets of it. But even then, it's like they tried too hard. And I was really just kind of left wanting on those things. Um, and it really, for me, all came down to the special effects because they just didn't look believable. It looked like a chintz job. And it's like, guys, what the hell? The smoke looked terrible when things would crash and blow up. Um, Black Panther looked ridiculous half of the time being in CGI and half of the time not. Um, and it's like, just pick one of the other guys, seriously. And that's definitely a common trend with these Marvel movies I've noticed with you that, I mean, you've, you've pointed out for most of them that we we've reviewed minus guardians of the galaxy of the, uh, the special effects not being as good, especially with these bigger Marvel movies. Yeah. And I, and look, as much as I want to hate on um, days of future past, I mean, it's, and it's not just Marvel. It's, it's everybody. It's so, I know you guys know about my loathing of that movie, but I think it's a legitimate concern, and it's not just limited to Marvel in terms of the studio. 20th Century Fox is guilty of it, too. And you just, I don't know. I, it really hit it. I'm going to go ahead and give this one a 3.5, which for me is a barely passing Rotten Tomatoes grade. But that's because I really and truly believed in the storytelling elements of the characters when it came to Steve Rogers and Tony Stark. I thought that personally this was the best acting I have seen out of either of them across all the movies up to and including Age of Ultron. All of that, you know, the great actors and that, yay. This was the movie where they really actually shredded their stuff as actors. And it was more than just watching you know, quippy superheroes doing action stuff. They really brought it. And even the resolution at the end, I thought still was honest to those characters, but the visual storytelling is pathetic. And, and I'm harder on it than most anybody else will be. So I'm sure people like Johnny, I know you're going to be like, what the shit, Matt, this movie looks great. And, I guess I guess I'm just wrong. So 3.5 out of 5 
And that's where we're going to go from. You know? Yeah. But what do you think of Spider-Man? I like, you know what? I'll be, I'll be honest. I liked Spider-Man. And the reason why is because, uh, what is this young man's name? Hang on, I'm going to scroll down. Tom Hollander or Tom Holland? Yes, Tom Holland. Um, I really think they finally cast someone who is just the right mix of uh, smart, quippy, comic booky, but actually seems to have some chops as an actor and will be able to bring a nice balance to being able to pull off something that's worthy of the comic book source material, but at the same time, not just look like yet another comic book incarnation. Like there's actually going to be something that can be done this time. So it looks like they may have the fingers crossed. I think they finally got it right. So 3.5 out of five and I'm struggling at 3.5. I'm yeah, I'm going to leave. I'll just keep it at 3.5 before I talk myself down. (laughs) My rating is going to be just a little bit lower than yours at three guys i every time i say i give up on being too critical or too judgy on these marvel movies but every time i see a trailer for one of these i get my hopes up and i get excited for this i saw a couple production videos for uh civil war where they were it highlighted all of the action scenes not all the action scenes but some of the great stunts of the movie and i thought Oh my god, these stunts look amazing. The these trucks running into buildings that are toppling over and they built sets and they actually have people doing wire and stunt work. It's it looks wonderful. So, in anticipation for it, I decided, well, you know what? I'll go see it in IMAX 3D. I, Disney and Marvel movies suck in 3D, but are pretty good in IMAX, other than uh, Gardens of the Galaxy. I saw Gardens of the Galaxy in IMAX and in 3D, and it was mind-blowing. It was awesome. But every other one I've seen, including Ultron, absolutely sucked. But I thought, you know what? I really, I, I thoroughly enjoyed, didn't absolutely love, but I thoroughly enjoyed Winter Soldier, and it's directed by the same two guys. I, You know, I, I'm going to put my, I'm going to put all my cards down and say that I'm going to get a kick out of it. So I go to the movie theater, playing on scene IMAX, it's sold out. Next thing I can do is uh, showing 45 minutes later, the regular-ish screen, still pretty big, but it's in real D 3D. And I thought, well, okay, I'll give it a shot. And holy shit, starting with the very first fight scene where you couldn't even really see the stunts, the camera is moving around too much. I listened to this other podcast or watched this other uh, movie review show where they kept saying that there was too much punching. You know, like all the fight scenes were comprised of punching people. But you really don't see the punches. It's a lot of the camera trickery. And you really don't get to see the stunt work happening because the camera is moving around. And on top of that, the 3D sucks. And Matt, you know, I'm in the boat with you with, uh, you know, how you felt with uh, The Jungle Book, where you two saw The Jungle Book in three, uh, Real D 3D. It gave me a fucking headache. And I apologize, guys, but I had a headache throughout the entire movie. So there was a lot of me looking away and massaging my neck because I was in a little bit of pain. I'm going to stop whining about that. But just so you know... So I, too, really liked the personal angle of Stark and Captain America. I thought the personal angle, 
that was all well established and I thought it was smartly built upon during the run of the movie. But overall, I felt the pacing was too slow. I thought the tonal shifting during the airport battle scene and its setup was just a little too obvious, and it felt completely different from the tone that was set by the Captain America and Tony Stark coming to odds. And nothing really felt worthy of such a divide from so many people. Yes, I can understand the clash between Tony and Captain America on ideals, but this is a major flaw to me, that nothing really felt worthy of such a divide. That, to me, was a flaw. The story and character progression bypasses all logical reasoning that smart people would comprehend, like actually talking and discussing, uh, you know, their feelings, you know, their sides. I mean, the two of them, Captain America and Tony Stark, have, like, a little bit of dialogue, and their minds are set, and they go their separate ways. And... Yeah, I know people will say, well, that's just a Marvel movie. It's an action movie. It's this. Well, that is, that's a problem to me. That's a big problem I have with these Marvel movies. They market themselves to be smart, smarter than your run-of-the-mill comic book action movie, but they don't follow the rules, you know, or they don't follow certain rules, or they don't fall into the lines of actually being smart. They market themselves one way, and they just know comic book fans, or, you know, Marvel fans, will just oogle over the idea that it's Captain America teams versus an Iron Man team, and that's all they care. Yes, they, they want there to be a story, and they want there to be a little bit of character progression, but little things, minor details like that, they don't give a shit about. And that is the issue. That is what separates the good from the bad. That's what separates a good movie from a great movie. And I felt like this movie could have been a great movie. Especially it was doing so well to differ itself from age, from the mess, the crowded mess that was Age of Ultron. Um, so there's no reason, so yeah, there's no reason to have Team Captain America versus Team Iron Man. And that's not, to me, that wasn't really the point of the movie until the beginning of the last act when the tone changes and they force that divide with the whole airport scene and the little scenes leading up to the airport scene. That is when the Team Cap versus Team Iron Man really come to place. And honestly, again, that's not what the movie was about. At least that's not what I thought the movie was about deep down inside. So yeah, I mean, when it comes down to it, what I liked about it was the character progression and the personal angle of Captain America and Tony Stark. You know, and and there is some dialogue that is funny. There are elements of the movie that I did enjoy, and that is why I land on I like it. Yes, it probably sounds like I should have given it such a lower rating. In fact, you could probably go to any, go and listen to any Marvel movies that Matt and I have rated and listen to my review, and I say the same thing. It probably sounds like I should have given it a lower rating, but I'm landing on 3 or 3.5 usually. But when it just comes down to it, I think with the majority of these Marvel movies is that, you know, their character progression of the two leading characters worked only with, to me, worked with the universe. 
that the movies that the the current Marvel movies have created, but I am still left with the comic book fun that I deep down inside really really want. And to me, that was Guardians of the Galaxy. Another not perfect film, but to me, that really capsuled the comic book fun that I would want to see in these Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man flicks, like Iron Man 1, for example. So, three out of five, Captain America, Civil War for me. Awesome. All right. Well, next week's movies are Money Monster, The Program, and Son of a Gun. Uh, let's see. Money Monsters in the Theater, The Program, is at your local video on demand, wherever you like to do that from. And Son of a Gun is actually available on Amazon Prime. So, yay there. Also, Caper Caramel, we have decided one of your two movie recommendations will be... A movie that we will be watching very soon. So, you need to email us at the show.slscast.com. That the whatever the show at slscast.com. That's what I mean to say. There we go. And let us know which one of those two movies that you recommended to us is actually the best, not your favorite. The best. And then we'll go ahead and grab that one and throw it on in the next couple of weeks. So, without further ado, I think it's time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitTwit12345. You can even climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Christopher Plummer, I get to say this. As T.S. Eliot measures his life with coffee spoons, so I measure mine by the plays I've been in. I'm too vague to measure any other way. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>